This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Vaughn. Join us in our search for a world in which many worlds can thrive. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. For more context, go to pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl And follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. In 2010, we, Sophie Krier and I, lived and worked for three months in Casa, as locals call Casablanca. The aim was to embrace the city as a place of production and to make a portrait of its hidden qualities. We named it Easy Casa, Ville Inventive. The resulting exhibition was an optimistic tribute to the resourcefulness of a thriving city. Many questions, however, were left unanswered once the residency was over. For instance, the fragility and invisibility of the quite substantial informal economy and the large-scale gentrification of the city through capital investors. More than 10 years and a pandemic later, we returned to Casa, in search of who makes the city, who owns it, and who is granted access to it. Okay, Moon, and the thing is on. There's no way back. There's no way back. We're in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Muna, welcome. We're in the hotel. You, you picked me up here. And um, let me introduce you first before we go out in, onto the streets. So, Muna Belgrini, um, you were born in Agadir in 1979. A beautiful year to be born in, <laughs> seems like. <laughs> and you spent the first 18 years in a small town before throwing, as you say yourself, into the big bath of the metropolises. You spent six years in Paris and the next 17 in Casablanca up to date. And it is in the chaos of the big cities that you find your balance and your happiness. And you're a jack of all trades, writing, editing, photography, voice dubbing, communication for festivals, and there's one red thread in all of this, the love for art, culture, for transmission and for sharing. And to me, you seem to be the embodiment of a magazine. You are almost like a living magazine because you are connecting, editing and distributing content 24-7 non-stop. Can you identify with that image? I kind of do, yes, I like <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, like a, a very... Tick magazine, you know, the <laughs> messy one where you don't really know what it's about. But yeah, I can relate to that image. <laughs> it's a magazine in progress. Exactly. Before going to the editing room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for you, you know, the chaos, the chaos, the city, the heartbeat of the city is to be found in the streets. So we decided to go out into the streets. So let's go. Let's do this. Okay. So we're standing here on the street. I think this is an electri electricity yeah, absolute station. Booth, exactly. And there's uh, some kind of collage. Maybe you can take a picture of it later. And I just love how it's um, a perfect picture of what Casablanca is because the more you look at it, if you see it from from far, it just looks like a colorful piece of something that you can't really define and the closer you get to it the more details the more uh, the more stories the more chaos and there's both beautiful things and very violent things I, I, I just love this thing it's getting older it's starting to peel off yeah, yeah but I love it and for some reason every time I walk by I take a picture of it even though I took like thousands of pictures of this place I keep doing it there's just, a lot of references. I, really I see it, the yeah. Statue of Liberty. There's, there's the these Moroccan American flag. icons. There's the Eiffel Tower. A few words in Arabic in Darija. What do they say? Um, many things. Like for example, this is our anthem. Like it pretty, basically says, uh, "God protects our country." Uh, these are women from Sahara. And, uh, Men playing chess. Yes. So a lot, a lot of. It really, to me, really sums up what Casablanca is. A cat, a hand, a Fatima hand. I love it. I could, And every time I come by, 
I, I pick up on details I didn't see before. I just love it. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. building going yeah. on. Everywhere you have noticed, yeah. Is some, it a boom? Some... Are we in, in the yes, middle of a building boom? Mm, I'm, I'm not sure about it being a boom right now, but it's been going for the last 10 years and it's going at a super fast pace. And since I take pictures of everything, I have photos of neighborhoods that totally changed, totally changed. Like uh, I remember back in 2010, I think, I had two friends coming from the UK who like were renting a place like uh, Airbnb didn't exist back then in Morocco but they they was they were renting um a small place in a in a street and today all the neighborhood is completely different so when I showed them the the pictures they wouldn't believe me they wouldn't even believe that it's the same neighborhood everything changed and, uh, yeah is there a theme in all these developments is it like big capital moving in or Definitely, uh, you can see that there are a few old villas and old houses that are still standing, but you see them disappearing day by day. And yeah, mostly big capital and big buildings uh, like are taking over. And usually, for some reason, they're either big banks or hotels, lots of hotels, big, huge hotels. Maybe they got a memo on people coming and we still don't know about it, but <laughs> they're building hotels Maybe everywhere. Maybe they know something that we don't know. Yeah, so they're basically pushing people who are living there and they're building hotels for other people who maybe want to live here, I don't know. Yeah, so what does it do to the social fabric of the city? Are groups of people being pushed out? Of course, um, groups of people further being... Further away? Of course, it's not new. I mean, all the cities now, it's gentrification, like it's... The lifestyle changes, the people change, the prices change, and it happens everywhere, in the old neighborhoods, but also in, also in the suburbs. Like, everything is really changing. Like, my, my, in my, I'm, I'm going to talk about my neighborhood. I moved in in 2008, and it was a pretty chill neighborhood, uh, very affordable, kind of messy, but not too much. In, in, in between two worlds. And now it's completely gentrified and how it shows, it's, it's simple. There's a villa that is like this one at your... A villa gets destroyed. The next day you have a big building with uh, studios that are more expensive. So people who move in have more money, supposedly. So the shops around will, would adapt to this new clientele. They will maybe close or just like revamp and become way more expensive. So people who used to live there before would, you know, things change like this. It, it takes, it changes step by step. You don't necessarily see it happening at the moment it's happening, but you wake up one day and it's, it's a different neighborhood, it's a different life. Okay. We're taking this detour. I love to take it because I just love how some, a few, very few neighborhoods haven't changed at all. Uh, that would be one of them. Uh, it's called Lusitania, and it's uh, traditionally, traditionally the Jewish um, uh, neighborhood of Casablanca. There are many, of course, but this one is more uh, symbolic because there's a synagogue in the back, but also because, as I told you, it hasn't changed at all. Like, the old houses are still here for now. Fingers crossed it will be for, <laughs> for another... Uh, several, several You never decades. know. I've just learned from you. Yeah, but... well. But this one seems pretty safe. Oh, by the way, this is um, this is a cultural uh, school, art school, it's a small one, mm -hmm. and this is where La Parallèle. La Parallèle, yeah. And this is where Cabaret Sheikhat uh, have their um, rehearsals, and that's like their um, Home headquarters. Base. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can quickly tell something about them because I think it's an intriguing sure. story. Well, uh, Cabaret Sheikhat, first of all, they're like um, a troupe of uh, actors, so they they really do like. Uh, plays, Shakespearean plays, like really, that's how it started. So, Kabare Shikhet, for those who don't know, it's basically musicians and singers, men who dress, who like drag, who do it in, in drag and they sing all the old popular songs that had, because way back, like way, way back in time, the Shikhet used to actually be like the news. They used to like um, ah, they tell were... what's going on. So the songs, the old songs, that's the old synagogue I told you about. 
amongst many, but that's one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they used to to tell about what's going on, about wars, about the colonizer, about how the troops were moving to the front, the wars, they, like the battles they won, the battles they lost, about injustice, social injustices and everything. So they Like a focalized magazine, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost, but wearing fancy, fancy kaftans and, and mm -hmm. doing it in rhythm, so that's way cooler, <laughs> way nicer. And the, the funny story with Kabar Shikhat is it started as a... Not a joke, but almost like a play, like a small play. And it really took, and it becomes super popular. Kabar Shikhat is one of the few, if not the only, show I know that is always sold out. No matter where, you, where they play, no matter when they play, it's sold out. And just me, like for example, I think I've seen them, I think I've seen them 20 times. And mm -hmm. it's never boring because it's, first of all, they're always, It's always fun to watch, and they're always adding new stuff. They're always, it's always super nice, and um, it's really fun to see these guys um, shaking. Actually, not not so much shaking the traditional model because this is also something that used to happen way before in the in the public squares because before women were not allowed to uh, to dance or sing in public way before so men used to dress in drag and that was something kind of normal and accepted as long as it was for the show and for the fun today with the media with the bias with the it may be seen differently but it's always really refreshing and reassuring and heartwarming to see that in a country where you would think that would be controversial They always sold out and, and the crowd is incredible. Old people, women, kids, uh, uh, gay people. Uh, the whole, like the mix in the crowd is, is super yeah, refreshing. It was interesting because I, I joined you in a, a house party the mm -hmm. other night, somebody's birthday. And then in the kitchen, I talked about this. And of course, me as a Western European queer man, I was tagging it. I was sort of putting a sticker on it. At, as it being part of gay culture or gay expression and they really didn't uh, they label didn't it like, it. like. <laughs> and they said they really corrected me like you know this is not about which is not actually because labeling is a new thing labeling is is very western and labeling is very hard to accept in morocco so a lot of things can be accepted but as soon as you put a label on it It takes a dimension that we're not used to, so it becomes it becomes automatically controversial or at least uh, rejected at first. Yeah. Yeah. So, is it a, a conclusion or a correct conclusion that a lot of things can be and can be there when you don't label it? When you don't label it and when you don't want to give it a purpose, or you don't want to push a purpose on it, you don't want to give it a... Um, You don't want to give it an agenda. Some things are just cultural, some things are just for fun, some things are just for to release things. Uh, and having to put it in a box is not very Moroccan, so as, lo as soon as you put it in a box, it, 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 it wants to escape that box. that's super interesting, we are used to put everything in, in a, a box. box. Yeah. And to make everything sort of an agenda. These are like my little bubbles of peace that I love to enjoy because eventually I know it's I know one day it's not going to be here. I, I know it. <laughs> so I, I, I try to embrace it as But much as still, I can. still, like now, the contrast between all these sort of scales and intimate patches like we just passed through, that also makes Casablanca. Definitely, right yeah. Uh, again, using the word you used at the very beginning, which is chaos. Everything is chaotic, including the architecture. The vibes, the energy, the sounds, everything. It goes, uh, there's no, it's like there's no pattern, but there is a pattern. It just takes time to. But you direct me in a beautiful it. way through this chaos. I try. Because maybe that's <laughs> also important. There's yeah. chaos and there's direction through the chaos. And with time, you start to know what, 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 what each place would uh, bring you. Because at first, I have to admit, the first years, I used the main. Boulevards, the main streets, thinking that it was safer, thinking, you know, all these kind of uh, How long ideas, did it take you, you know? to get to, to, to really years. feel like rooted? Three years. Three, three years. years, yeah. Three first years were hell. 
Casablanca school of life. Yeah, almost. definitely. And I remember I used to tell people, and I used to believe in, in this, I used to tell people, in three years, I would either go crazy, I have to leave or I would go crazy. So I think I went crazy because I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I explain it. <laughs> and from there, I want to show you uh, a street art piece that is more, nothing to do with what we just saw, nothing related to festival. It's really like a raw street art from a very iconic street artist in Morocco called okay. Groco, Groco or Trick 54. Trick 54? Trick 54 is his AA and uh, yeah. Let's go Let's for it. <laughs> Let's pass this super busy street first. Okay, so here I just wanted to show you one of uh, Groko's, the artist I told you about, pieces. This is pretty new. This one, I think, is from the lockdown. And, uh, Can you describe it for our listeners? What do we see? Yes, it's kind of a face, but it's, um, it's hard to describe because it's like a distorted face. And if you look at the details, you can see that it's made out of weird lines and sometimes phallic shapes. Um, holes, uh, eyes, it's, it's kind of disturbing and soothing at the same time and it's, a, it's pretty... I would say sensual. Also, that's too. And it takes many shapes and many forms um, according to the place it is in. For example, this one is pretty clean and uh, nice. Sometimes it's more intricate and more complicated. Sometimes it's colored, like the one we walked by two, two days ago. It was uh, orange. And I would just like to say a few words about uh, Groko. He also has another nickname. It's uh, Trick 54. And he's, uh, he's the legendary street artist of Morocco because he is basically everywhere. I doubt that you can go to a place and not find uh, at least a little marker or stencil. He used to, um, he, he does graffiti initially. So he bombs like a lettering. And, and now he is moving into another form of expression with these faces, but also another form of expression as he kind of dived into um, uh, contemporary art and installations, street installations. And he, he is special because, first of all, everybody knows him, but very few know him. He's everywhere, but we didn't know who he was at first. Now he's starting to show his real identity since he started uh, doing more installations and now he's releasing a documentary about his life as a street artist for the past maybe 12 or more years, maybe more. I, I don't want to say something that's not correct. But he's got, he's got um, the real street credibility. He's everywhere. You find him in Marrakesh, you find him in Rabat, you find him in the, the weirdest places. If you travel with a train, he would be, he's a real graffiti artist. You will find him under the bridges, uh, hundreds of kilometers away from here. You would, uh, if we, let me show you everywhere, Mona? every time we walk, let me show you the craziest places. He, sometimes you can't, you cannot think of how he, he reached that place, like some heights and things like, um, I don't know how he does it, but he's like, a, he's like a superhero when it comes to, uh, street yeah. graffiti yeah he's quite good because yeah. he has a very recognizable yeah. um, handwriting and his his um, his aka is trick 54 which means khuda in arabic and his new um, art form like this kind that we just saw he uses the kh, the letter kh from khuda so he kept a, a little bit of his older style <laughs> and muna can you in, a, in like a few sentences and that's hard i know but can you sort of paint a sort of a broader picture of how graffiti, how Moroccan graffiti fits in the, in the more like the international graffiti movements. When, when did it enter Morocco, for instance? Is it, I'm sure is it, it American based? Of course it's American. I mean, all graffiti Everything. is American based, but I think it entered, it probably entered Morocco at the same time because Morocco's always been like a kind of a roundabout so people from different places always pass by Morocco so I think it started back in the 80s or 90s but on a very very small scale for a simple reason uh, there was less exposure people knew less about it but also it was really hard to find uh, spray paint as, uh, as easy as that when it comes to traditional uh, street art like uh, murals and things like that you can you can trace it back to the 70s there's a city like Asila in the north where you have a painting festival on walls in the city 
that has been there for since forever, since the 70s, the hippie movement and everything. But graffiti as we know it, like the graffiti, more the vandalism, uh, anarchist movement, I think it started picking up the late 90s, thanks to the um, diaspora, like the Moroccans who would come from... Uh, from Europe and who would bring this art form and bring the, the spray, of course, of course. The spray yeah, pens they first back of all. From yeah, exactly. And now that it's it's not as much affordable because it's still expensive, but at least you can find it. So now it's it's getting more and more popular. There are, you can find we have we start to have names like of uh, Moroccan graffiti painters that are known that there are that have a signature that have a style, and some of them has turned into muralists and do bigger bigger. Uh, pieces. Some of them were invited to uh, showcase uh, internationally, so that means it's picking up for sure. But uh, there's another component. To me, the mm, the most visible and most lively and most vivid form of street art right now is related to football, to soccer. They are everywhere, especially the ultras uh, movement. You can the most of the things you will find on the walls today would be soccer related. Uh, the soccer is the base, but it would also be political, social. There will be uh, anarchist uh, messages, slogans, but around the, the soccer movement. Because it's interesting because you link the graffiti art to chaos, to anarchy, to violence also. And we were walking the streets the other night, and there was there had been a game. The Greens were playing, and you were everybody was quite cautious, like oh, we should go out now because the game is over. And you walked over to some people on the streets to ask what, you know, how did they what play? The because that's was. <laughs> what was the score? Because that decides how violent it will be in the streets. Uh, absolutely. Well, it, it's uh, yeah. The Raja was playing. I'm Team Raja, by the way. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. But yeah. Um, it's pretty violent and again it's uh, it's another medium for people to just express a lot of frustration a lot of uh, hidden things a lot of, it's um, you know it's soccer so it's it's a catalyst for many things but yes it is a catalyst so when there's a win the joy is multiplied by a million and when there's a loss the violence and the anger is multiplied by a thousand and it can be very, very, very bad. And yes, asking about the score actually gives you the tone of, uh, of what the night would look like because it can go from, um, from a party like a carnival, like you're in Rio de Janeiro and people party until 4 a.m. to uh, a riot, with two people breaking shops and breaking cars and yeah. But you said it before, like it's, it's sort of a thread of this talk that there's this chaos that belongs to the city, that you like and you thrive on that chaos. That chaos has a sort of a creative, positive vibe, you know, it's, there's things going on, there are things happening. And it has this sort of darker side, like, you know, you named the tag on the electricity house which said Casa in ruins or Casa is ruined. Well, there, there's that, the, people who think, who say Casa is ruined, sometimes I'm, I'm, I say that too. It's nostalgia because it is moving, it's morphing, and we don't know where we're going to. So there's always this part of, of you that likes to stick to what we say was better or was... But to be honest, maybe it's just safer when you know what it is. Maybe the future will be better, who knows? But, you know, it's changing and it's changing at a very fast pace. So I think those who don't like change are uh, scared by the change those who are willing to escape are happy about the change and there are people in between like me who are torn between what I love about the city and uh, what I hope will never die and what it could bring because I keep complaining about gentrification but it also brought super nice things and people are more comfortable in the public space so yeah it's very so we're going into Muna's building Oops. Slammed the door, not on purpose. Taking the elevator yes, up. Yes, we're taking the elevator. <laughs> and it's uh, cooler. Cooler it than is. outside, it's super hot. Do people have air conditioning a lot? Not as much in Casablanca, because Casablanca doesn't have um, a harsh weather. Not too cold, not too cold, not too hot. Sometimes we have waves like this. 
but usually you know people don't uh, accept in big houses and very fancy apartments and like marrakesh where everybody has the, the almost everybody has oh, it's so because, yeah because you cannot <laughs> survive otherwise but yeah no so we're going to the sixth floor yes sir <laughs> for our listeners <laughs> door opens. Tell you listeners that my oh, house wow, is a mess. Oh wow, I love this view. <laughs> Could you? Tell your listeners that the house is a mess. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of radio, they won't see. So we're in the house, Muna. We had just had a refreshing juice because it is kind of a heat wave out there. Didn't know, I was wearing my sweater. <laughs> but anyways, um, we're in with the cat sitting at the table. Um, we crossed, we made a beautiful cross section through town, through small scale neighborhood, big time boulevards. We saw graffiti, we saw a street art. We talked about the connection between street art, anarchy, soccer, violence also. And that more positive shift of that violence or that energy is dance, you could say. And you are totally into dance. So let's talk a couple of minutes about dance. How did you get involved into the Casablanca dance scene? Um, yay, we're going to talk about dance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it actually was totally random, I think. Um, I came across a few dance events during my Casablanca life, but I never really got into it until 2016. Uh, what happened in 2016 is I quit my job uh, when I was in the press, like um, magazines, and I got hired by a radio station that happens to be in the Einsberg neighborhood, which is quite far from the center. It's uh, it's almost outside. It's, it's Casablanca, but it's almost outside. It's a 40 minutes ride. So whenever you go there to work, you don't just come back for your lunch break or whatever. And for my lunch breaks, uh, I was lucky enough that at the same time I got hired by this radio station, uh, Maria Daif, who was an ex-colleague. We actually quit at the same time from the same job and we both had new careers at the same neighborhood, different careers. So I was at the radio station and she was in charge of that cultural uh, center called Luzine. So I would go and see her every now and then. And every time I would go, I would either hang out or stay at the coffee place or whatever, work there. And then I started to see this kind of community of dancers that I never heard of before. Young, mostly young, mostly male. And I would just like see them, you know, street dancers always stand out because of the, their look, the way they walk, the attitude and everything. So I, I, I was kind of fascinated by, by it, and it took me almost a year, like 2016, to just like put a finger on how attracted to this world I was. There would be a few shows from time to time, or they would just like, I would see them dance in the coffee um, space or things like that. So I would start to really um, get closer and closer, but just observing for almost one year. 2017 uh, became like a more familiar face. So I would speak to some of them and I would know when there's like an exhibition or a, a training session, I would go upstairs and watch, not just observe them in the, in the outside, but go to the training spaces. That took me almost a year. Uh, the next year, 2018, because it's re it, it really took such a long time. 2018, I started knowing their names, their style, what they do. We started almost becoming friends, which is a weird word because they're almost uh, young enough to be my kids. Like literally, I'm, I'm old enough to be their mom for most of them. But I started like hanging out with them and, and like getting more into details. And I started to go to when they have a battle, to go there to support them, to attend their battles outside in the street. And what I actually, there's a, a weird relationship that started. I forgot to say that because in 2017, I started taking pictures and filming 
which is something I do uh, on a daily basis since since forever, since I can remember. Like I have pictures and films from my high school, from my college college years. I'm I love to take to keep track of everything I do, even things that seem random. So I started taking pictures and videos, uh, and Instagram started to become more and more popular. Uh, the, the the around these years, sixteen, seventeen. And I started posting either stories or... Stories were not actually a thing back then. There was mostly uh, posts. And I become, without knowing it, I become the reference. If there's a battle, people would tell people, if you want to see your round, check Muna's account because I would film everything because that's what I do. I'm, I, I'm, obsess like I'm obsessive and I don't have... You like, became the narrator. Without knowing it, actually. And that's how I started knowing people because... I would receive a message saying, did you film my round? And I'd be like, yeah, sure, what were you wearing? And they'd say, I was wearing uh, blue blue pants. And uh, so I would remember that uh, Mehdi or whatever their name is, he would say, I'm from uh, Qanitra or from Marrakesh. Did you, do you have my round? And I'll look for the guy with blue pants and I'll find it. And, but then he would become a contact. But if I go to Marrakesh, I would tell them I'm around. Is there anything related to dance? And that's how it started. It really started as a personal quest because I was uh, totally hypnotized by this. So 2016, getting closer. 2017, <laughs> getting closer. 2018, getting closer. And becoming a familiar face. Going to Meknes, starting to know people from different cities that sometimes didn't even know each other. So I became a link without knowing it. 2019... I become familiar enough for some of the the dancers to actually push me to start dancing to 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 yeah to put me in a, in a situation where I started actually moving. And what did your body say? Did your body say yes? Oh God, no. Or was no. your body all, all, already at the beginning, at the first encounter? Thought did your body think I want to do this? And I don't think my body wanted to do this. I think there was some. I think I've I've always been. Uh, a dancer in a very informal way like if there's a party I would be the girl who would dance all night not not even talking or socializing but I wouldn't do speci specific moves but I would move the whole night if there's a wedding if there's I'm known as the person who danced all night that's that's the thing but no moves no dance background no specific style no not even um, a sense of my body or what or what different parts could do. Or not, none of this. Just like random uh, movement. Uh, so when they started to push me, actually my body rejected a lot of... Not, not rejected. I was very self-conscious for many reasons. The age. Uh, 2019 is where I started. That makes... That made... That I was 39. Most of them were 17, 18, 19... Uh, and I was one of the few girls, woman actually, but still. So I didn't, it's really weird. Again, I, I love contrasts. It was um, a mix between feeling totally out of my zone and at the same time feeling totally at home. So it, it took me almost one year to just be able to dance in front of a few of them because that's how it worked. I could dance next to the closest ones and then three and then four and then <laughs> and that's how and there was a joke back then because I started to pick up on a few things on a few classes and the joke was that uh, Muna the old uh, the old one would uh, kill it in 2020 that they were all joking they were all like I want you to be my partner in all 2020 battles and things like that that was a joke and then 2020 happened, and you know what happened in 2020. Every, everybody knows the lockdown, the pandemic, and everything. So that was the joke. That was the joke that I was so ready that everything stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, weirdly enough, that was a very important uh, year in my dance uh, journey. Because I started taking a lot of uh, online classes. I had more time. A lot of dancers all around the world were given free classes. I ended up taking classes from some of the biggest dancers in the world because they were given free uh, classes on Instagram. Uh, people I would have never dreamed of even approaching. And it's it's fun because I had time, I had the patience, I had the passion. 
You would do it at the home here? Here, you, yeah. yeah. This this okay. space you're seeing, yeah. And I, and that's another thing that happened. Uh, hi. That's another thing that happened that year is that I started documenting this. I started uh, filming my my exercises that I had. And now that I look back at it, it's crazy because uh, the progress I've made, and I'm not saying it because I think I'm... I'm good now but the progress is incredible and I think the the lockdown helped me because I was alone I was practicing a lot and uh, kind of the atmosphere the general atmosphere of the end of the world thingy kind of broke a few barriers that that made me able to just like what the heck exactly let's what go we, for it exactly so I'm what years I'm old and I, I, I'm learning so what and it actually gave an extra layer to my relationship to dance and dancers because I was not just and maybe also a little bit to the, to the internet because Instagram jumped in that hole in that hole absolutely uh, and became a platform completely for, uh, completely a lot of communications but completely Apparently in also for many the dance fields, world. a lot for the the dance world, and also on a personal level because I it made the switch between just the observer and the reporter to almost an observer reporter slash insider, but like uh, differently, and uh, we could I could talk about this for for hours, but to move forward, another thing happened. We had almost two years. Morocco was really strict on lockdowns, and uh, even when the world started to go back to normal, between brackets, we stayed in that uh, lockdowns on and off, on and off and on and off for for a long time. So we had two months that were very important for the dance community, that were the month of Ramadan, because the month of Ramadan is a month where you can, after the 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 sun the sun sets. Usually, you would have the meal and you would go out and there would be a, a life. Because we live at night in, during Ramadan. But for two years, the space was... Uh, we, didn't, we were not allowed to go out. So everybody was basically up and free for hours and hours and locked it at so home. So the social space of the night completely was became a digital space. Became a digital, especially on Instagram. And a few dancers, uh, old ones, like respected ones, started doing uh, live talks. And these live talks really picked up. Uh, it's when Instagram released the the possibility to have four people on a live uh, stream. We started having people inviting other people. We started having dancers that left Morocco, dancers from Morocco, dancers who are just beginning, dancers who retired. And these lives became very interactive. They were either subjects and topics where people would talk about how complicated it is to be a dancer in Morocco as a male, you wouldn't think it's complicated, but it is. As a female, comparing before to now, a lot of discussions. Were you also in the organization of these events? No, but i that's one important thing. I happened to notice that I was a link. For example, they would ask, who does that? Do you? I don't know if anybody that, on the lives, I don't know if anybody does this in Marrakesh. And I would have the answer, even though I'm not a dancer. I don't know if there was, there has been a battle lately, and I would be yes, of course there was this place. This. So I I realized I had kind of gathered info, almost like the memory of the scene. Ka yes, kind of. And the more the conversations were going, it started building in my head that something was to be done with all of this. And uh, happily enough, there was another person. Uh, his name is Shaolin. His uh, dancer name is Shaolin. He's, uh, he calls himself a retired dancer, but he's, he's to me, when he wants a dancer, always a dancer. He lives in uh, Dubai, and he also has almost the same um, vision as mine. I mean, he's connected to all generations, all type of dancers. He's got a wide network, but I was new to this field, and he's the old one. So we started having conversations outside of the lives on what is there to be done, what is there to be... Uh, me with the eagerness and the passion of somebody who's just putting uh, myself in this world and him with the, the background of someone who's been in this field for years and who detached from it and who got back to it with the lives. And this is where an idea was born uh, of a project that I'm currently working on. It's called Liquid Bridge. It's, uh, it's a platform. 
and we are hoping, I mean, it's more than a hope. We are planning to do a lot for the, not only the dance community, but the dance community is what triggered it. But hopefully it's for all the marginalized art forms uh, in Morocco. It's called Bridge because we want to bridge all these spaces that don't easily meet. Like communities from cities that don't know each other. Also art forms that don't usually interact, uh, hip hop dancers with maybe ballet dancer, things like that. But also we want to bridge the, the narratives because we realize that there has been a gap and the young generation thinks that they're building new things. They don't know about the people who were there before, who had more struggles, who, you know, so we have so many things to do. Uh, the project is huge and I think it's only the beginning. It started a simple conversation. It took two years. Uh, it morphed into uh, the idea of creating an association. Legally, wow. yeah, legally we found um, kind of difficulties to have an association. So we started building. Today it's it's we have the papers. It's it's born. It was born uh, 20 days ago. <laughs> wow. And have you, do you have any idea where this is going what what this is going to result in? Is it like a digital platform it's or a database? So many things. It's so many things. I can talk about this forever. Uh, we pick one wanted, thing. Pick you know, one thing that you look forward to. What's in what's the real, within reach the that you think? Biggest, okay. The biggest dream is to have a space, a, a physical, physical space. a physical space that would gather all of this. We want it to look like a, an artist squad, but without the negative uh, layer of a squad. But for it to be a physical bridge, but it will host events and talks and lots of things to be a safe space yes in Casablanca hopefully to be a safe space for all these communities that's the biggest dream but in parallel not before not after not in the side we want to build um, a database that would be available for everyone it's not it's it has no commercial purposes at all it's just hard when you type when you google street dance in Morocco there's absolutely nothing or you would find a few Instagram videos or TikTok videos. That's almost a shame, especially that Morocco has been on the hip-hop scene since forever. Like the hip-hop scene started the late 70s, early 80s in the USA. We have dancers that started dancing in Morocco in 82, 83. That's, that's incredible. That's, that's history. And, uh, and there's an energy, there are stories, there's so many things to be told and to be said. So yeah, we uh, like the project is huge, but we're so excited. And you do what, what you always do and what you're really good at. Uh, you, that's you the thing. And you distribute yes. and you direct. Just hopefully now, the, the next step and the most important step, and I think that's what my summer will be dedicated to, is to find, um, to find funds and people who are willing to fund all of this because it's a very, very important uh, part of this, this kind of uh, initiatives. Why is dance so... Why does it stir up so many emotions when people do it and people look at it? What I think, what I think is that uh, the body is our main and very first language um, tool. And for some reason, a lot of us forgot about it. Some cultures are closer to it than others and didn't really forget about that, uh, that language. And us as North Africans and Africans luckily enough are still very close to this um, to this language because that's what it is and it it steers emotions because it's a universal language and i think uh, it's of course other art forms music does that painting does that photography does that but the body is something that we all have in common and it really stores a lot and i came to learn this way later it, st it stores like Memories from times you wouldn't even remember. I mean, a lot of art forms do that, but I think the body has a special power of connecting yourself to yourself, but also connecting yourself to others. To me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's life, actually. It's not just a metaphor of life. To me, it's, it's actually life. Well, let's move on to the, because we've been talking a lot, let's move on to <laughs> yeah, the very last, last bit of the talk. Mm -hmm. And of course, we talked about it before, but that's the huge, huge, huge influence and power of the internet and of 
a platform like Instagram. There almost seems to be like a digital version of Casablanca, which is Instagram. Yeah, you, you send me a lot of these... Um, accounts. Accounts. Uh, people have a lot of followers. It has a lot of energy. It, is a, it has a lot of references. It's a lot of reference to 90s magazine world, uh, supermodels, 80s retro fashion. Um, that, that Instagram jungle, Muna, where is it heading towards to? I think it's expanding and uh, I really love it because it's um, internet can be used both ways. And for now, the artist scene, I think, is using it the right way because for some reason, this generation that is coming up, not mine, but really the younger ones, they grew up with internet. It's organic. It's not something that you use. It's just... A, it's just um, it's, it comes naturally to them, so I don't know if they're aware of how rich it is and how impactful it is. I'm not sure they're aware of it, but they're aware of the references and they're super smart about it because they grew up with all this. They, exa they know what they're doing. And they're, no, but no I, I know. But at first when I saw it, I thought it was like spontaneous or some kind of naive uh, approach, but... I came to learn this with time because at first you think they're just like like us, just like using it as a as a platform. But no, they're very aware of the audience, of what works, of what doesn't, of who they are, of what matches with... So, yeah. But it's really interesting, Muna, because you took me to this party and I met one of these guys who has a very successful Instagram account. Yes. He has like 200,000 yeah. 200, followers, which I think is a lot. And in real, he's like, I didn't even recognize him at first because he's kind of shy, not very, you know, in, into the front. But he has this very Instagrammable sort of personality because you, you instantly, instantly uh, love him when you see him because it's this sort of tongue-in-cheekness, the fun that he embodies. So it's almost like they're two worlds parallel to each other the real world with the shy karim and the and the virtual world with style Beldi, yeah style Beldi as a star and, and, and it applies to a lot of them boys and girls it's like they they are all m almost more comfortable online than in real life although they are when you get to know them the the two personalities match afterwards but it's true that in real life they're yeah they're kind of they're not always embodying the the persona that they have online. But, but for instance, let's let's take him as an example. Yeah. What do you think is his ultimate goal? Like, what is his strategy? I followed him since the very, very, very beginning, like when he just started, and you can tell that he is very smart about what he does because at first it started as um, a passion for photography and retro style. He lives in a very popular neighborhood. He used to feature a lot his neighborhood. That was his trademark at first, to feature the talents of his neighborhood. He, he lives in a, in a slum. And he used to do a lot of videos at first to show that people who live in slum, slums have a lot of talent and of, like, just to take them out of the... Um, the bias that people would mm -hmm. do. So he would show dancers from his uh, neighborhood, uh, football players, uh, act, a lot of things. Uh, that's how he started. Then, when it started growing, that's why I'm telling you this, this generation is super smart. First of all, he's, he started noticing that people loved his style. So he created a side account where he started selling um, thrift clothes, which is probably a source of income. And once you build this image, you know that eventually uh, brands will be interested in you, which is all already happening. So, and is Karim still living in that same neighborhood? Yeah. Still living with his family, still living in that same neighborhood. Yeah. But his future looks bright. His future looks bright. And to be honest, what I love about this generation, as bright as his future is, I'm pretty sure he will also keep living in his neighborhood because there's this... The narrative is changing. It's not... The victim mentality is not anymore a thing, and uh, there's some kind of pride and uh, belonging. There's another one who's called. Uh, I'll send you his. Uh, I'll send you his uh, his Instagram. He's he's skyrocketing lately since uh, maybe two three months ago. He's called uh, Talaa, 
and he lives in a very, very poor neighborhood as well. And he looks like Pablo Escobar. <laughs> and he built a character around some kind of a Pablo in his neighborhood, speaking Arabic, speaking with Moroccan references and everything. The only thing he uses from Pablo Escobar is the music. It's just the soundtrack. And just with this little detail, he built a persona that is skyrocketing for reals. You would see the, the numbers and the followers and the hype around him. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're really good at what they're doing. So we end up in a pretty up, up mood, yeah. Mona. Oh, the future always. is bright. It is always. You just. Ha I think you always have just have to uh, believe it. And you know what they say: where where the attention goes, uh, the energy flows. I think, or something like that. So yeah, if you focus on the bright, I think we're going to a bright side. If you if you focus on the the dark side, that's all you see. And there's a there's a, a bright and dark side to everything. But uh, this generation, I think, they're way more optimistic. And just to finish on another change that I noticed being in the scene for almost 20 years. Uh, before, the generation that was here had some kind of uh, victim mentality and the number one dream w was to leave the country and thrive somewhere else. Anywhere but here. Anywhere but here. This new generation doesn't have a victim mentality. They would love to go, to travel, but only to see what's going on and to come back. Because they're here to stay. Because they're here to stay and they're here to change and they're here to be heard and they're here to make a difference. And that uh, couldn't be brighter than this, to be honest. Well, that's a beautiful yeah. end of this conversation. <laughs> and now the cat is attacking me. Yeah. No, he's not attacking you. He's showing no, you love. Sure. Yeah, I know, I know. You're not allergic, though. <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay. Thank you very much. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Travelling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.